0: Welcome to the Untranslatable Podcast. We are here recording episode 72, and we have a very, very, very special guest on with us today. So today we will be talking about some of his compositions, and uh, I'm really excited as a music nerd to have him on our episode today. I think it will be a wonderful episode, especially for all of our music lovers from around the world. So we really hope you appreciate today's episode. So today we have a wonderful guest, uh, Michael Jupström, who is a composer, professional pianist, and uh, although I've only been talking to him for a few minutes, he uh, strikes me as a renaissance man, so we're very happy to have him on. Uh, But before we get to that, uh, we're here with my buddy Jared. What's going on, Jared?
1: Hello, hello. What makes a renaissance man? Um, Jay-Z is a renaissance man, I know that.
0: That's true. I mean, I guess... When I think of Renaissance Man, it's a it's a man who can do many different things well. Hmm, And uh, and I've watched some of the YouTube videos of uh, Michael and he seems like a fantastic pianist, a huge fan of his music as well. Uh, And his music has I mean, we'll get him to actually talk about it because I think he's the it's better to hear directly from him. But my impressions of it, um, there's a lot of different influences and he can compose a lot of different styles of music. So we're very
1: happy, happy to have him on today quite an answer um (laughs) well i'm a welcome to the untranslatable podcast everyone i was not expecting that answer i am jared the renaissance man and uh (laughs) to see my some of our renaissancing activity follow us on twitter untranslatable one the number one follow us on instagram you can see me renaissance Renaissance around philadelphia (laughs) and soon to be berlin and Czech republic i'm going to be in berlin and prague in a week and a half a week uh, well, for the people listening to this, it'll be uh, five days, but <laughs> nope. uh, yeah. So uh, you can see, follow us on Instagram on Untranslatable Podcast, or you can email us. Mostly Chad. He needs some more Czech untranslatables. That's untranslatables true. Untranslatables are idioms, sayings, maybe uh, weird sayings. Do you have any? Think of any weird sayings your mom used to tell you that make no sense, but you know exactly what she means. We'll get back to that. Let some me think of about those, it. and uh, you can email us some. Chad needs some more Czech ones. He's running low. Yep. Uh, I'm still a master at the internet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, that's what makes me the renaissance man that I am That's all I have Chad. Oh, wait, that's is not all side? I have one more thing is please spread a little love uh, And give us five stars reviews on uh, iTunes and Stitcher No,
0: absolutely Absolutely, so I think we should get into our interview uh, with Michael And so, as I mentioned, he is a professional pianist, composer, and also composition teacher. He studied just down the road from where my parents live at the University of Michigan and also spent some time in Paris. So we're very excited to um, hear what he was up to um, during that time. And he teaches a compositional seminar at the Curtis Institute of Music. And uh, he has also uh, won many acclaimed awards and different prizes, um, from international composition comp- uh, competitions, such as uh, the UK's Daily Society, the American Viola Society, the Chinese Fine Arts Society, and I'm sure there are plenty more. So we're very happy to have you on, Michael. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us. Yeah, it's good to be here.
1: Um, so... What did you do in Paris? Like, you, it said, I, I looked up, I, I Googled you. Uh-oh. Did I mention I'm good at the end ah, you, you did your <laughs> research. It's obvious. It, but it said Paris. Chad and I, we have a, a love-hate relationship with Paris. Not that, we, not that we say it's overrated, but that's also giving it the respect that it deserves because it's one of the greatest cities. But uh, what did you do in Paris? I
2: went there twice. I mean, I've been there more than twice, but I was right. there for like two periods of, of time. The first one well, was three months because I hadn't done a lot of planning, and the maximum anyone can stay if you don't plan is 90 days. That's true. Correct. And also, I had no financial sources other than my savings, so it would have run out shortly after three months anyway. Um, yeah, I had, finished, I had finished a master's degree at U of M, um, as you just heard, and there had been a visiting professor there. Um, I think she had come actually three times, but while I was a student, she came for two different semesters. Her name was Betsy Jolas, um, she's a composer, she lives in Paris, and at the time she was living in Paris, and I had been really fascinated by some of the things she had said um, in seminars. I wasn't her private student, but I would gotten to hear her give presentations and talk about what music was like, what contemporary music was like in France. Um, and I had wanted to study abroad, I had wanted to live abroad in any case, um, and so I just literally reached out to her and said, Hi, I remember you from Michigan, I would really like to study with you, is that possible? She was retired already from uh, teaching at conservatory, but she had private students, okay. and she said, "I mean, really simply, yes, you can. Um, That's I'll be great. there, you know, mostly during this time and this time. I'll have to leave a little bit, but I can, I can, I can be there and have you as a student." So we set it up, and I went for three months. After which, I guess I was actually there for three. Period. So I was there for three months studying with her.
1: The government's not listening. You can tell <laughs> did. <this. laughs> uh, I did I you didn't, there for four months? <laughs> I did nothing wrong at that point yet.
2: So then I went back for a, a, like a short-term festival that following summer, mm-hmm. which she was teaching. And after that festival was finished, um, she let me know that there was a, um, a grant that that same music academy gave to its graduates. I mean, I, they call it an academy. Essentially, they run short-term uh, Masterclasses, mm-hmm. but anybody who's participated in a master class is eligible to apply for these grants. And she said, You know, I was thinking it might be interesting to you to come back to Paris for a longer time in the near future and work for me as a personal assistant. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, she had been, she had done the same thing. She explained to me that she had been the assistant for Darius Mio, who's a like really famous, famous teacher, uh, famous composer, famous teacher in, in French musical history, really in world musical history. And Um, she was his personal assistant and also she had been um, sort of an informal, what's the right word? Um, Olivier Messiaen was another composer who taught at the Paris Conservatory. He was an organist and extremely famous composer. Um, Betsy had been his student in in the class, but she was older than a lot of the other students and so later on in his career as he was touring more and more on the organ, he asked her to replace him at the class. Mm -hmm. So she had been um, not personal assistant to Miss Young, but she had kind of been his assistant, like his replacement teacher. And then oh, when like he a, what, like a substitute, like a yeah, a permanent substitute, oh, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then permanent when he substitute. when he finally retired, she uh, had to apply officially uh, for the, the position, you. but she essentially took over his class. Oh, so okay. she said, you know, that experience of being an assistant, both in a teaching sense and then with her other with her other former teacher, a, a business sense, a musical sense, um, also it had been really instructive for her, like illuminating to see what the life of a senior composer was like. And so she proposed the same idea to me. So I proposed that idea to the foundation and they supported it. So then I went back the following year, which is 2008 for a longer period. That time was six months mm-hmm. to work, still to take lessons from her, but also to work as her personal assistant.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: wow. That's amazing. So, so I have a, p- a question for you, Michael. Um, what are some of the things that you learned um, as a composer working uh, under her name is Betsy, right? Yeah, uh, so what were some of the things you learned as a composer under Betsy, but also you know as a as an adult, as a human being while you were living abroad? you know it can be a very exciting, sometimes overwhelming and daunting experience,
2: as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, musically, I would say I learned uh, I mean I learned a lot of things the french the French contemporary music scene. Was and is really different than the American contemporary music scene. Um, to boil it down into you know, a few points is difficult, but something I can definitely say I learned to be, it sounds a little bit abstract, but I'll explain, to be more demanding of my musical materials okay. from Betsy, which is to say that instead of just letting, instead of simply, I should say, because I still, intuition is the most important thing I think we have as creators, but instead of simply letting the intuition pull you in any direction, pull the piece in any direction. She told me, she taught me to, to the right word is to be more demanding with the material, to see what the material needs to do itself, but to also have an idea of what you want the piece to be and not simply to let sort of fantasy take you. Um, mm-hmm. In a creative sense, I think we, we do need to let fantasy take us places because that's how you come up with things that, that don't exist yet. I mean, that's kind of the mystery. You can't sure. define how we create, but in terms of creating a discrete piece of art, I think that she showed me how important some additional intellectual control could be over that creative fantasy
1: so by by that, you mean maybe more adding sort of that classic musical science as far as structure and, and mm-hmm. how that stuff goes to it when are you I don't want to put words in your mouth, but almost that maybe. Earlier on, when you were you sort of fought that a little bit more, and you thought like this because I sometimes question that too when I listen to a lot of um, a lot of more classical music, where it's like, is I sometimes wonder if they're like constricted by by the form and and, and yeah. sort of trapped into this into a into a, a, a lane.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a it's a balancing act to sort of not crush the creativity and be too intellectual, mm-hmm. but if you want to create something that is more than let's say just noodling around on the piano just improvising on the spot mm-hmm. if you want to create something with a sort of greater impact on the long term um, you have to you have to be more intellectually in control i remember right. i mean i remember her telling me like, saying the words noodling as a critical <laughs> like <laughs> analysis right. of something i'd been doing and she said you know mm-hmm. it needs to be more than that and the especially in the first time i was studying there with her we didn't actually examine the music I was writing very often, maybe mm-hmm. never those first three months, I, I can't recall exactly, but we looked at a lot of pieces from the past written by other composers, so officially studied music analysis, which mm-hmm. was the course that she had been teaching at the conservatory in the beginning. She was you know, just an analysis teacher rather than a composition teacher, which was added later for her. So we looked at music by all sorts of composers, like music from the Renaissance, music from contemporary France, music from the classical period, music from the Romantic period, and we, together like analyze them in as much detail as possible to sort of not not analyze it from a dogmatic perspective like you might do in a music theory class but to look at it as if you were the composer to try to put yourselves in yourself in beethoven's shoes or mm-hmm. Boulez's shoes or whoever the composer was and see why they had made all the decisions they had made in order to create a piece of music that made sense as a whole and in looking at all that music from i mean from so many different stylistic and historical periods i saw that the thing that struck me the most is that all these composers, regardless of where they're coming from, historically or stylistically, they had such control over the material. Mm -hmm. And that's That's fascinating. That's the most important thing I'd say that I learned from that experience working with her.
0: Right. Wow. And what about living in Paris as not, not not only as a composer, but being, you know, and some people call it the city of love um you know it's very famous Chad so doesn't. what was that like for you
2: <laughs> i mean it was it was phenomenal I, I still love paris and i went i've been back many 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 times um as a composer also i think uh you said not only as a composer but as a composer it was also interesting working for her uh, it was both illuminating. Oh, what's the right word encouraging and depressing simultaneously and mm-hmm. that i saw her life her her life as a composer fighting to have a career, you know, working with a career, building a career, developing a career. And she's, at the time she was in her 80s, so an extremely senior composer, I mean, really respected, within the French musical establishment of absolute highest order in terms of respect. But even someone like that had to fight for her career, mm-hmm. was constantly mm-hmm. having to promote her music, was having to negotiate commissions, was having to do all the same things that I was having to do as a really young composer. So on the one hand, it was, it was shocking, really, because I thought, heck, if, sh- if she has to fight this hard, I mean, how am I gonna possibly make it, right? This is not fair. Sure. But on the right. other hand, I thought, well, in a certain sense, I'd already arrived at being professional, whatever that means, mm-hmm. because right. someone mm-hmm. like that is, is, you know, fighting the same battles that, I'm, that I was fighting and yeah. still am today, right? So it and was that's an interesting. That's a great way to look at it. Yeah, it was a really interesting experience, being that close to the career of an extremely senior composer.
1: So it can be deflating, but then you can also see that like, oh, like it, it kind of puts your where you're at in perspective and you kind of be like, Oh, can I do this? Am I gonna be able to get to this this person's level? But it's like, oh, like she's going through the same struggles that I'm going through. Exactly. And that this is just it's just the game. It's this just is, what happens. Yeah. This if you're gonna do so this, right. this is how you this is how you play. Yeah. So I guess it it's could be terrifying, could be exciting, depending on It's how both. You look at it. it was both uh, uh-huh. sure. Yeah. 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 It, 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 so you're a teacher, so you don't, you, don't, you don't still fully have that fear, do you? Or it's like you're, you're sort of riding a, 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 on it like that? Oh, no, all the time. It, it, <laughs> it never goes away.
2: It doesn't go away at all. That's, no, that's I mean, I like in terms of like financial support, my teaching is, I'm, I can't do the percentages for you, but if, if you ask me to define my mm-hmm. identity as a musician, no, but, but <laughs> I would say a composer most of all. Right. I'm mm-hmm. a pianist also. i mean, a performing musician, and I'm a teacher. So, and it's not like some, some people have, you know, really excellent university positions, which essentially support them. Mm -hmm. And then as much as they can, they write on the side in whatever time they have left over. But here, I mean, at at this school, it's, it's different. Most of the, I mean, the vast majority of the teaching positions are adjunct. So we, we each, you know, determine how much we want to teach. And then, you know, work that out with the administration and get right. have, have a situation that works mm-hmm. for us. So here, like at, in the current position I'm in, I only teach here one day a week. I teach one composition seminar. Okay. So it's, I mean, it's part of my career, mm-hmm. but it's right. not, not the, the financial pillar that <laughs> one might imagine. So no, I'm, I'm still riding that wave or wow, fighting, that's, that, that's fighting cool. those battles, just like, just like mm-hmm. you know,
1: when I was 27, same thing. Right, right, yeah. right, right. Okay, sure. So, so um, when did you, what, what you how did you get into the music to begin with, like band and elementary school
2: and all that Absolutely, stuff? Absolutely, yeah. It was actually, it was band in elementary school. <laughs> my mom had played the piano, um, like a lot of kids played the piano. You know mm-hmm. she took the piano lessons from the person down the street. I don't really know if that's true, but something like oh, yeah, that. I gotcha. Didn't take it seriously at all. Um, but she could show me the rudiments uh, when I was a really little kid. I don't actually remember it very well, but apparently when my sister, I have a sister five years older, when she was taking recorder in school, something that mm-hmm. you did back then in fourth grade oh in our God. district, everyone played the we recorder. We did in our school as Same well. Our school okay, today. so everyone yeah. knows. Yeah, fourth graders played the recorder. And I guess <laughs> I wanted to play her recorder all the time, so I would take it and play it, and eventually they said, okay, we can get you your own recorder. Mm-hmm. So they went mm-hmm. down to the local music store and bought me a, a similar plastic recorder, and Sounds I played like a fun it. fun house. Oh, so it must yeah. have been noisy, right? <laughs> so I played the recorder all the time, and I had been interested, obviously, in the piano whenever there was a piano um, present. Like my, my grandparents had a piano, my mom's parents. You so would I would just noodle around on it? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> nice. It started early. Now they, they realized that I had interest, um, like real interest in music. Mm-hmm. So they found me a local piano teacher, that kind of down-the-street person, who was actually like the local church organist. And I studied with that particular teacher. Her name was Lillian Roston. I studied with her all the way through high school. Oh, and wow. at a certain point, she said, you know, you're taking this... I mean, you ha- obviously you love it and you have some talent. You should take it more seriously if you want to do anything with it professionally. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. said, well, let me think about it. So I thought about it for a week between those lessons. And I came back and I said, no, I don't think I'm going to do anything with it professionally. <laughs> <laughs> thought it beforehand? Had you not realized? No, I'd never taken it seriously. You are just like, this is what I do. This I is, just, it's fun. Yeah. And yeah, right, anything sure. I did, as in playing the piano or even writing little tiny pieces of music, which I started doing just for the heck of it. Mm -hmm. I thought that was natural. I thought anybody who took piano lessons did that.
1: And when you're a kid, also, at least for me, let me put it this way, when I'm a kid, I don't really think of something as like a, like a, like that as a job you know you're like you're like you like you can't you can't live up no, on that. no like you
2: don't i mean you can only imagine what you've been exposed to right who your models mm-hmm. are and right all mm-hmm. the people's who uh you know all the composers whose music i was playing they all died a long time ago mm-hmm. i'm not really sure i even realized concretely that somebody still had to write music now <laughs> like that didn't occur to me classical right. music's done people have already made I mean, it. it's classical beethoven right? that's exactly. classical music exactly we're done with yeah this. And I mean, truthfully, <laughs> when you go to concerts, I mean, I I didn't grow up in like an, an orchestra family or anything. We didn't, right. neither of my parents are professional musicians and they didn't have particular interest in classical music. They were supportive of me, like amazingly supportive, but we didn't go to concerts all the time. So I didn't realize that, of course, there were still composers, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. it, it wasn't a... It wasn't anything that was on my radar. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So, but I mean, so uh, like I said, I took these piano lessons, and you mentioned band. Yeah, I played saxophone and later oboe in my high school band, Mm. and at the I guess elementary school and middle school and. You played oboe in elementary school. I played saxophone in elementary school, and when I was in 11th grade, um, I essentially just asked the band director, "Hey, can I try out the oboe? Because, Mm -hmm. like." You know, I'm a, I'm a musician. I was a right. big music nerd. So I had... Yeah, nobody, nobody wants to play the oboe. I had played <laughs> lots of instruments, like a little it's bit. Terrifying. You know, my, I'd stolen my sister's recorder. Later, I had stolen her clarinet, you know. So then I noodled mm-hmm. in the clarinet. And back in high school, when we had substitute teachers, sometimes we would switch instruments, you know, little punks. And I had learned <laughs> sure, enough trumpet that I could pass as like the worst trumpeter in the band. Right. So I played a lot of instruments. And I thought, you know, oboe's kind of cool. I think I should play the oboe. So I, yeah, he said, yeah, well, actually, we have an extra oboe. So he let me take it home and I taught myself to play badly. So then I, yeah, played oboe in band also.
1: So before, awesome. you, before you realized that composer, musician could be a job, what, what, what were you thinking? Fireman, you know?
2: <laughs> well, frankly, I didn't give it much thought at all until okay. it was time to apply for colleges. Like mm-hmm. I knew I was going to college. Um, my parents had gone to college and I knew that everyone right. you know, who was going somewhere in the world went to college. So that, exactly, was, that yeah. wasn't even a decision, mm-hmm. but I didn't know what I was going to study in college. I hadn't even realized, hadn't thought about the fact that you had to decide. So then in my junior year, when all those, you know, leaflets were coming in from the schools trying to tempt you to apply, mm-hmm. I thought, oh, well, what do I like the most of all? And the answer was music. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, maybe I should do something else because, you know, I was dimly aware that it wasn't the most lucrative career. <laughs> right. And I had loved chemistry in high school. I had an excellent, excellent chemistry teacher, um, James Christensen, if you're listening. Shout out to James
1: Christensen. There we go. It was
2: fantastic. So I had actually told myself that I would apply to different schools as a double major, and that was my intent. Um, but of course, if you apply to music schools, you have to apply with, you know, apply on an instrument or apply as a composer yep. with a portfolio of works, things like that. Um, so I had to apply already to the University of Michigan as a composer, I was accepted and I was intending on doing a double major, you know, figuring out how, how to do that once I got there mm-hmm. and once I got there, I realized it was impossible because all the organic chemistry labs were exactly the same time. Right. Like, you couldn't get away from it. They were, they conflicted exactly with musicology.
1: Well, was it, I, I wonder if there was some sort of, actual thought behind that where it's like well if we got to sort of set up how these classes are done <laughs> we're gonna the stop overlap? these kids <laughs> <laughs> no not even stopping kids but it's just like we have so many times in the day what's the overlap between people taking both you know this advanced freshman musicology and, yeah. and <laughs> chemistry right yeah. so i
2: mean it, it happened very quickly you know i i, I was pretty sure i was going to be a musician but i was i mean i really did love chemistry mm-hmm. and i thought that was a good idea to have a kind of backup but then sure, when push came to shove, either, when it when it well, I didn't know that, right? <laughs> Science seemed stable at least. But but you know when I saw the the, I realized it wasn't going to happen. There was no decision really. It was right. it was done. I mean I mm-hmm. I was a musician.
0: Right, that's yeah. great. And so, and so Michael, how how did your parents feel about you studying music? Since it like you mentioned, it's not the most lucrative field. I was actually told by my mother, uh, I was a German major and I was going to do German and econ, but my love was music as well. And so. It was funny. My parents told me, you know, my dad was a painter, studied art in Berlin. My dad could care less what I studied as long as I was happy. My mom was worried about my future. And so she said, well, you know, we'll, we'll let you take guitar lessons, but don't get too into it. Don't study music. And then a week later, I called her. I said, yeah, I declared my major as a musician, as a music major. <laughs> so how were your, and, and how are your what, parents? What did she do, though, once you told her? Sorry, mom. She ex- I mean, what, what can she, she accepted do? She it, had to right? accept it. Yeah, yeah she accepted that's, it.
2: That's what my parents did. I, I don't... I was really not cognizant of the fact that they were being supportive of something that was kind of dangerous. I mean, mm-hmm. like I said, I wasn't aware enough to know. But they knew, obviously. Right. And neither of them were musicians. So they knew without having much information to, to help them. I mean, how scary is that? Mm-hmm. But they supported it unequivocally. That's great. I mean, what more... Really? I mean, yep. financially supported it, spiritually supported it, emotionally supported mm-hmm. it. They said, go for it. And really right. not until quite a bit later, like when, when the beginning of a career was forming and I realized that, okay, I, I'll never be a rich person, but I can support myself with this. Then I found out from them kind of, Whew, we're, we're really glad that worked out. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sure. But they had kept it They kept the whole thing under wraps because I guess they just decided I needed all
1: the support I can get and nothing besides mm-hmm. that. It's That's phenomenal, great. really. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think, I mean, that's definitely, that could make the road so much easier, just that alone. Yeah. E- even if you're on the most, you know, unknown sort of path, it's like, at least I know I'm not alone on this. And, and, you know, that's yeah. very important. Yeah. Um, so you went to uh, U of M. Yes. Which is a good school. So this means that in, um, like, in high school, you were you were a good student, I assume. At least uh, I was a good you student. got by.
2: I, I was a good student.
1: Chad mentioned that his parents... Um, lived down the road from, uh, from U of M. That's true, he grew up in Dexter, Michigan, you've heard of it? Yes. And uh, you know, went to high school in Dexter and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised that he used that as the uh, sort of landmark for where your school is, because Chad went to grad school <laughs> at Michigan State. Here we State. go. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> ah! Yeah. But you know, that's also a good
2: school.
0: That and it's also it a good is. music school. Yeah. Yes, it is. Bo- both are fantastic schools, and I, I was fortunate being so close to Ann Arbor, I spent a lot of time at um, the, is it called Rackham Auditorium or Rackham it's called Concert Rackham.
2: Hall? Yeah, Rackham.
0: Um, I saw a lot of concerts there. A lot of really good, uh, like Christian McBride, the jazz bass player, saw him play there. Um, saw a lot of UVM jazz stuff going on there, which was really great. And uh, yeah, I have a lot of respect for the the program. The music program there is fantastic. All right. Yeah. This
1: didn't go the way I was hoping it would go. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> not enough fighting, huh? <laughs> no, this, I guess not. Not what I was looking for. No, I'm kidding. Um, so so, so I,
0: I have a question for Michael, if, if you don't mind me interrupting Jared. Please. Um, and, and this might be a loaded question, so I apologize. But could you kind of walk us and our listeners through of kind of what, what is your compositional process? You know, like I said, I know it's a loaded question, but, you know, d- how does it work?
2: Every piece is different, which is not a cop-out answer. Um, Every piece is different. So where the inspiration comes from is a total mystery. Mm -hmm. And it it varies. Sometimes it's literally just a musical idea, like a theme in the traditional sense, pops into your head and you have no idea why. Other times you've decided, okay, I'm going to write a piece inspired by something specific. Maybe the commission that you've been asked, (coughs) excuse me, the commission you received is to write a piece um, that reflects Japanese culture Okay, then you've got a place to start from and sometimes it might be you've seen a painting that inspires you or you might see Mm -hmm. the way a bird flies in the park that inspires you and somehow As a musician for me, it transforms itself into something musical Mm -hmm. so that aside after that once you've got some sort of uh, springboard from which to which to write the piece I tend to make a lot of plans about the structure the form of the piece Usually if it's a commissioning if it's a commissioning situation, you have some restrictions on, on what you're going to write. Like you know how long it's going to be or you know the forces you need to write for, or usually both, how long it'll be and the forces you're writing mm-hmm. for. So based on those things, I kind of have an idea of how it's going to unfold dramatically. Like I, It might be as, as um, abstract as I know it's going to start peacefully. It'll reach a climax two-thirds of the way through and then return to the initial feeling of peace. It might be like that, mm-hmm. but it could be more specific. Um, but I kind of have a dramatic blueprint essentially in my mind, and then working with those some of those initial musical ideas and the dramatic blueprint, I come up with other musical material. Either I work with what I've already come up with, or I come up with contrasting material depending on what what that blueprint needs. Mm-hmm. And once that's done, that's all done like at a table or just sitting around, um, you know, thinking in my head, but usually taking notes mm-hmm. at a table. Then. I'm a pianist, so I work heavily at the piano for many, many, many hours at the piano. So then I go to the piano and I work things out as in I harmonize melodies or I work Mm -hmm. out harmonic progressions or I work out counterpoint or I work with the notes on like a really detailed level. And then once it's done, once all of the sort of detailed musical decisions are worked out, if it's a large, uh, large form piece, like uh, uh, not a large form piece, but like for a large ensemble, like orchestra or something, I will have had a lot of details of the orchestration in that the music I was writing while at the piano, but not all of the orchestration decisions are done. So then I go back to a desk with that, with that, um, what do you call it? A really, really detailed sketch or a blo- mm-hmm. like a we'd call it a short score of music, like a, all yep. of the musical yep. information there on a, right, mm-hmm. on a few staves. It could be two staves, could be five staves, but mm-hmm. not the 25 or whatever in the orchestra score. And then you take that short score and you orchestrate out. So then I do the ba- that back at a desk. Um, and then once that's finished, or if I had didn't need to do that step because it was for a smaller ensemble, then I input the whole thing into the computer. Because nowadays you need to deliver parts that were digitally engraved. You can't, sure. it's really not professionally acceptable anymore to deliver something by hand, a hand copied score. Right. So you got like a thinking stage or a creative stage at the beginning, which is a mystery. and could come from any number of sources. Then you have, a, for me, a kind of planning stage, like a, a blueprint stage. Then the longest stage, which is working out all the details at the piano. Then the sometimes necessary orchestration stage. And then the last stage is really just more like a hours of labor, putting it in the computer.
0: And do you use Finale or Sibelius? I use Sibelius? Sibelius, Sibelius. okay, yep. nice. That's what I used to use back in the day as well.
1: Very cool. Yeah. I use Note, Note Flight if anyone was wondering. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I um, so I have been taking I take piano lessons. I've only been doing it for like three years, but um, an assignment that we have to do all the time or every year, uh, we I take uh, we meaning all of our students, is we have to write a composition, and it's actually for her children students, but she makes everyone do it. And this year, the theme is pets. I've never had a pet. My sister had some birds, and I uh, have blocked them out of my memory. But, <laughs> um, uh, I always, could you give me a tip as someone that is obviously a, a novice composer of, like, I struggle to even start. Like, it's, especially when I have this specific sort of theme I'm, wor- I'm, I'm working towards uh, granted I struggle I, it's not like I, I'm, I'm composing ever I don't it's hard I don't really enjoy it but that's also the thing I don't really enjoy doing it because I'm not a diligent sit like you have to sit down and like like be yeah. focused for a month yeah yeah and I struggle with that and um, so do I <laughs> and usually <laughs> I would, that would be the, <laughs> uh, what 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 motive how do you motivate yourself to actually do it and, and, and there's a deadline a it's answer. that simple I think that a lot of, for a lot of creators,
2: procrastination seems like a horrible thing, but I think it's really part of the process. I don't know, how, don't know what else to say. And when the deadline comes, for me personally, at a certain point, I must have some really, really finely tuned internal clock yeah, because like suddenly something <laughs> deep inside knows that I need to start now. Mm-hmm. And if I don't do it, I start to get really irritable mm-hmm. and irritating. Mm-hmm. And then usually a few days into that like, negativity period,
1: I think, wait a second, I think I need to start so then I start. So do you not compose without some sort, or not m- write something without some sort of? Um, what do you call it? Like a commission? Commi- Thank you. Uh, mm-hmm.
2: Sometimes, but truthfully, in the last like number of years, no, because like in order to, in order to plan out your work schedule, you take commissions pretty mm-hmm. far in advance, so you know when something's due. So then, if you're going to write right. another piece, either you just you know bookend enough time that you can do it yourself. But most likely you've had someone already asking who's going to pay you, which you need exactly. to pay your rent and everything. So sure. then you, you mark off the next set of months to write that piece and then you just keep doing that in the future.
1: And that's sort of the balance, I think, of also trying to keep it as creative as possible, where you also, it's like, it's like yes, I did this because I love music and I love composing and, and all that stuff, but this is still my job and I still have to do that. Like, Ex- exactly, yeah. Oh yeah. I still have to support myself with, with uh, stuff that can get in the way of that stuff that you deem to be the most important. Exactly, there, exactly. And that, that, do you have stuff that just sits around half done for years and years? My own personal working uh,
2: method, I finish the pieces and I'm extremely meticulous. Like. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could talk to people who are listening to me compose or people I ask for advice about you know is this version better a b c d or e and they say they all sound exactly the same (laughs) but to me these little tiny differences really matter so I go into Uh, it like with the the, you know like the the finest nib on my pen and I work out everything and then when you go in for the first rehearsals or the series of rehearsals and the first couple performances you change certain things you tweak them Um, I usually don't personally change that much. I don't do massive overhauls. But in any case, I tweak it and I'm usually pretty darn satisfied. And after that point, the pieces tend to be finished, like capital F finished. Mm-hmm. And I put them aside and then I work on the next one. Okay. I, I mean, haven't had the experience myself very often to go back to a piece that was, you know, so, so-called put away and done mm-hmm. and keep working on it.
1: Okay. And
0: so so go, ahead. go ahead. So how I know this is, this will be a, a very Broad question as well, but how long generally does it take you to from you know the first note you put down on the uh, sheet music to the final bar line? How long does that usually take you? Depends on the piece. Um, I can tell you about the last two pieces that
2: I wrote, and then you can figure out if there's some kind of pattern here. Um, I finished a piece just last week, um, it's a almost 10 minute orchestra piece for the Great Fall Symphony in Montana, and it'll be oh, premiered, cool. It'll be premiered in five or six weeks six weeks mm-hmm. or so in uh, mid-April that piece I started last summer I think it was June I'm not exactly sure anymore but it was midsummer. let's say let's say early June just for the sake of argument and I worked on it about two and a half months mm-hmm. and then I stopped worked a tiny bit more let's say three months, just to make it easier. three months, took a longish break. Then I did the orchestration starting in January and then put the whole thing, you know, put it in the computer and finished everything just last week. So mm-hmm. that's three, four, four and a half months, if my math is right. Sounds four about right. Four and a half months of, of really long hours.
1: What kind mm-hmm. of information, do, then we'll get to the second one, what yeah. kind of information do they put into the commissions? Like how... What, what are they asking for? This particular piece? Um, yeah, actually, that's a good question.
2: Commissions tend to be specific because if people are putting money down for something, they have a reason, usually. It's mm-hmm. not casual. Mm-hmm. Um, this orchestra, this is their 60th anniversary. And for the last, I think it's the last three decades of their existence, they've commissioned a piece to mark the big anniversaries. So they had a 40th anniversary commission, a 50th, and now a 60th. So they said, for our final concert of the 60th anniversary season, we want a piece that celebrates us in some way. Or that's, it has to be a celebratory piece, Mm-hmm. But it's up to you how to how to how that will manifest in your piece. Um, and the I think two commissions ago, um, Great Falls takes its name from a series of waterfalls that are that are on the Missouri River. Um, Lewis and Clark famously the ex- Lewis and Clark expedition famously came upon these waterfalls. So. Two decades ago, the commission was about, in some way, I don't know the piece, but in some way about Lewis and Clark. Mm-hmm. Um, and the city now uh, has the moniker, the Electric City, because there's a series of hydroelectric works on, on that river. And so the previous commission, 10 years ago, was uh, the piece, I think it was called Electric City or something like that. So they said, you need to, it would Sounds be like great if you, if, you can re- <laughs> if you can reflect something of us in your piece, but mm-hmm. how you do it is totally up to you so okay. that's how that was okay for the Great Falls Commission um, the previous the last big piece I wrote before that was a string quartet just over 20 minutes I think 21 um, and a string quartet takes less labor at the end in terms of inputting into the computer or at least ostensibly it should, should because there's only four staves instead of sure. 30 staves um, that piece let's say I should have started it five months before the deadline um, and I can I could sort of feel as I was approaching that should've mark that I should have started, Mm -hmm. and that like I said it should have been a five month kind of piece. So even though ostensibly it's less, it's a longer piece. And chamber music writing tends to be more uh, more detailed. Frankly, there's more like the the density of the texture is a lot higher. So there's a lot more tiny decisions you need to make. At least that's how I think of it. Orchestra music is painted with a little bit of a broader brush. So Mm -hmm. the musical content itself in the chamber pieces you have to get in there a lot more detailed in a detailed manner so five months I think is probably what it should have been for that like 21 minute piece it was less okay. and <laughs> near the end it was very very like nail biting kind of situation because I had started a little too late
0: <laughs> which which string quartet was that was that number two number two yeah it was oh great was. <laughs> that's that's a fantastic piece uh, I've Thank been you. listening to a lot of your music the last few days um, to try to prep for our our interview and our episode. And uh, I'm also just a general uh, lover of string quartets and different things. And so um, I was curious, I saw one of your YouTube videos, and have you come up with a a name yet for the string quartet number two? No,
2: no, I haven't. Yeah, when I was giving like the pre-concert introduction to the piece, um, I said to the audience that, it would be nice if the quartet had a name. Like a lot of famous quartets are nicknamed by the publisher or nicknamed by yeah. someone in music history or sometimes by the composer. You know, so they call it string quartet number two, comma.
1: Untranslatable.
2: Exactly.
0: <laughs> so no, oh,
2: I don't have one yet. Okay. I don't have All one right.
0: yet. I don't have any if ideas for you. If you, you come up with let okay. me you know. I'll, I'll, I'll just, give I'll it a couple more listens uh, and see what comes <laughs> to mind.
1: I'm sticking with untranslatable, but that's just me. <laughs> Um. So,
0: um, I'm, can I ask a few more questions about the string quartet number two, Jared? Oh, please, please. Okay, so um, I was listening to it earlier, and um, first of all, I really love the differences with all the all the different movements, uh, especially the the beginning of the second movement with a lot of the uh, pizzicato in the and I believe it's the violins. Yep. Um, so, how how do you view when you when you compose something that has a few different movements? Do you try to make the movements very contrasting? Do you try to kind of connect them all together? How does that process work for you?
2: Both, absolutely both. Um, They have to connect together because if they don't, then why are they together? Essentially, Mm -hmm. why are they not just three separate pieces instead of a three-movement quartet? But also, they have to be contrasting, for me at least, because why otherwise would you have three separate parts? It's a a balancing act. So Mm -hmm. um, in that particular piece... I'd actually originally planned to write four movements, um, which is is kind of like the classic string quartet structure. You write a a hefty first movement, you write a slowish second movement or totally slow second movement, you write a lighter weight third movement, and then you write a kind of upbeat finale. That's pretty much what people have done. Mm-hmm. Uh, people have done a lot of things, but that's the most classic standard structure. Um, and this, the string quartet, uh, the Dover Quartet that commissioned it, had told me we've had a lot of works written in the ten-minute category, and we would really like to get some what they called repertoire pieces, like hefty, mm-hmm. big pieces, multi-movement. So I thought I'm going to write a big piece, you know, big capital B piece, mm-hmm. capital P. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so I told myself I'm going to write one of those pieces, just like any of the Godel boys did. So. Mm-hmm. I had finished the first movement and I had finished the second movement and I was aware of the deadline and I was aware of how long those two movements were, but I wasn't actually aware. And I went through it in my head with a, well, with a stopwatch, like I had the stopwatch going and I played the piece in my head and I was really surprised how long they were already. I think at that point they were like 14 minutes or something like that. And the commission I think was originally for 18, was something like 18 to 21 minutes, something like that. Mm-hmm. And... The second movement, especially the one with the pizzicato you mentioned, is pretty long. I think it's eight and a half, maybe nine minutes long, and it 's mostly slow and it 's a pretty weighty movement and something just intuitively, I realized that if I were to write the the lightweight third movement followed by an upbeat fourth movement, something something about the overall structure, the balance would be off it, okay. needed, it needed to be a lot more really energetic, upbeat music in order to compensate for the really sort of heavy, dark second movement. So I scrapped my plan, or I changed my plan, let's say, and I decided I needed to write a, a pretty long, like let's say six minutes or more, uh, fast movement for the last movement. Mm-hmm. And when a piece is fast, it means usually they have a lot of notes. Which sure. takes a lot more work, so mm-hmm. it was like nose to the grindstone right up until the deadline. But it, I'm really happy with how it, how it turned out. I think the balance of the, between the three movements works.
1: Are you a, are you a late night worker? Like, do you enjoy sitting in front of the piano at three in the morning or something? Mm, no, definitely not. Definitely not. I tend to work. Um,
2: in The last couple of years, I don't know why, but it's just sort of worked out this way. I tend to work in the afternoon, like right after right after noon specifically, mm-hmm. like twelve thirty or one. I start, and then if it's a if it's a normal working situation, meaning there's not like a pressuring deadline coming, I stop right around dinner. So it's like twelve thirty or one up until six thirty, something like yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there is pressure, then I just go until about midnight, or let's say eleven, something like that. Mm. Yeah, That's still a long time. Though. It's a long time. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So, uh, do you have anything else? Any other questions about the uh, peace? I have. L- I have lots of. <laughs> I have lots, lots of I questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm just nerding out
0: right now, so so my apologies. <laughs> Go but,
1: for it. Um, forget so, my notes. So you, you mentioned know, Chad mentioned I'm <laughs> the notes guy. Forget them. Right.
0: <laughs> I see them though. There are a lot of them over there. But I've got right. to half of one. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yeah, we should have booked you for three, four, five hours well, according to all our notes. Your computer is
2: plugged in, so I think we're okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, we got plenty of that. Uh, but yeah, so so I was also wondering. You mentioned how um, I believe uh, I believe it was the string quartet number two was inspired by a Hungarian composer, am I right? Or am I thinking of a different composition?
2: Maybe a different one, or maybe you're just gonna mix it up, you're thinking of Romania? Or is Romania? Specifically...
0: Sorry, Romania, Romania, that's it, okay. exactly. And you mentioned, you know, taking uh, folk music and, and classical music. So how do, you, how do you actually set folk music in a classical context um, without having it just be, you know, orchestrated folk music?
2: So that's, I mean, that's a big, big question. You could ask a lot of people that question and get different answers. Um, in the terms of this second string quartet, it was the third piece, or it is the third piece I wrote that, had some, that drew something from Romanian music. And so far, it's the last, you know, the third and the final one. I don't know mm-hmm. if it'll keep going. But to answer your question better, I think I have to back up just a little bit. Um, in more than a little bit, to be honest, that's um, fine. I, beca- I became interested in the music of a Romanian composer named George Anescu.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Back when I was a student at U of M, I think it was in 2000, I heard a recording of one of his works, which is a sonata for violin and piano, like Sonata Number Three. Mm-hmm. And in that piece, Anescu. He doesn't actually use any folk themes, but he, he calls the piece sonata in the folk character, like he okay. s- lays it out there. He, he, I mean, he, he, his first violin lessons were from a folk violinist, and his, he's a fascinating, complex musical personality. But he had a lot of folk elements in his music already um, that were, in certain pieces, they were very overt, in other pieces, they were kind of just part of the DNA. But in that piece, Inescu said, I'm just going to write a folk piece. So he wrote this classical piece, which he called In the Folk Character, and in 2000, I had just never heard anything like that. It just—it really blew my mind. Um, I thought it was crazy, I thought it was delightful, I thought it made no sense, I thought it was compelling, I mean, it, it just changed changed things for me. Um, and because of that piece, I became interested in Inescu as a composer, and I got to know his music little by little. As far as I know, I've I've gotten to know every piece he's written. I mean, I became like a severe Anescu nerd. Okay, and cool. in learning more and more about Anescu and learning more about his music, of course, uh, people, like ancillary people in his career, their names came up. So all these Romanian names were coming up, and I realized that I'd never heard of the vast majority of them. Just never. And I thought that was kind of strange, because other cultures, you know, there are sort of... Uh, I don't want to say second rate, but less important in musical, hist- in musical history terms. Less sure. important composers from France. We still know who they are, and their pieces are still performed from time to time. And, you know, record companies will decide to do recordings like complete works of Pierre Ney or something like that. But in the case of these Romanian guys well, and women, men and women, they were just totally unknown. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really strange. So then the curiosity started to drive some like, small, let's call armchair research. Uh-huh. And I started looking into their music, too. And the more and more I got to know about their music, I realized there was an extremely rich musical culture. Now, we're specifically just talking classical musical culture, like sure. concert music culture in Romania. That was basically unknown, as far as I could see, and still mostly to this day, outside of their own borders. Unknown and some of it, I think, has to do with political reasons and um, economic reasons. But it also has something to do with just cultural reasons. I'm not sure if the music doesn't resonate. Or th- in, my f- in my feeling, I don't think they're a terribly self-promoting culture that mm-hmm. has something to do with it. But it, for whatever reason, this music was just not known. So I started discovering more and more and more Romanian classical music, some of which I thought was really good. And a lot of Romanian music from the middle part of the 20th century was inspired um, overtly or not by folk music, sometimes by the music itself, sometimes by the idea of folk music or by ideas Mm -hmm. like we should be using folk music to inspire ourselves, that kind of concept. So as a result, at a certain point, I thought, gosh, I wonder what would happen if I were also inspired by that same folk music. So then I started learning a little bit about the folk music, Nowhere, not anywhere to the same extent that I've looked into their classical music scene, but they have a really rich folk music culture also. Even to this day, I mean, in the 21st century, there's still there's still like folk music that's alive, genuine folk music that's alive in Romania. Um, so I got to know a little bit about the folk music, and then one day decided I wonder what would happen if I... How, what would happen if that music were kind of reflected through the prism of my own musical personality? Mm-hmm. And I wrote a few pieces, like I said, three, um, three pieces that, you know, reflected something of that Romanian folk music. And the the latest one, that string quartet, um, was a little bit different. In the first couple pieces, I had more or less, like you said, um, not exactly orchestrated folk music, but used folk themes, like actual folk themes, and sometimes just harmonize them as simply as that. In the way of like early Bartók, he did the same thing. He took folk music and harmonized it. Um, whereas in the, the string quartet, I mean, I'm not really comparing myself to Bartók in terms of the depth of his involvement with folk music, but mm-hmm. in the same way that in later Bartók, he composed music that was influenced by the ideas and the feelings of folk music, but it wasn't actually folk music that he was writing. Right. Um, the string quartet is a little bit like that. Now, some of the parts of the string quartet do actually use folk themes. So I take a theme and you know, harmonize it, so to speak, simply as that. Or it could be that the theme itself was modified as in it was slowed down a whole bunch or the intervals of the, the actual musical theme were changed. Mm-hmm. And then in some parts, it's just the feeling of like how a certain kind of Romanian folk dance feels. And then I compose music that felt the same. So oh, it, cool. it, it, it mm-hmm. interacts with the folk music in a lot of different ways, actually. That's great.
1: I came across you at um, the Red Velvet Hull concert. That was a couple months ago. And you put on a performance with uh, a violin, and she played one viola piece, I believe. And then a cellist. Yes. And I remember specifically um, during the the piece that was... It was a Bartok piece, I believe the last one. And the cellist, Clancy was his name, was mentioning that... um, he you could tell about during the performance that he uh, he mentioned that it was one of his favorites and he loved it but you could tell while he was performing that it it, would i actually mentioned this on the podcast after we did this because we talked about this it very much came through but he also mentioned that he never felt that it was he he could he could he could play it and like perform it and give it its due because he was in groups that didn't seem to respect the uh the piece as much as some of the more prominent um classical artists
2: Yes, I remember. Okay, I th- so I think the piece that the last one, mm-hmm. the like a big long piece, six yep. movements. Yeah. So that that piece is a piano trio by Dvorak, mm-hmm. and I remember. Dvorak. I, I remember when My you were man. talking about Bartok it was, was the, the first, first one. one yes. Yeah, but I know exactly what you're talking about because I remember Clancy talking when he introduced that piece that Dvorak wrote music that was. I mean, I don't know where he got the quote from, or whether he was just extemp like. I don't know if it's an actual Dvorak quote or not, but mm-hmm. Clancy told us, explained to us, that Dvorak had tried to write music for the people, that he was trying mm-hmm. to write music that would be directly um, relatable for regular people as opposed to people who have the who are already habituated to concert halls. And Dvorak himself did later on um, make a big deal out of the fact that we, meaning composers, should be inspired by the folk music of our countries. Mm-hmm. And... It's interesting that you say like Clancy mentioned sometimes Dvorak is not accorded the same kind of respect as other composers from a similar period or you know shortly before and I I tend to agree I don't really understand why I think it probably has to do with some cultural ideas of maybe like culturally chauvinistic ideas of Dvorak was not German he didn't fit into the german speaking like culture which mm-hmm. is for many people the sort of like pillar of classical repertoire, um, and I do think that in general, a lot of the nineteenth century non-Germanic composers tend to be written off as nationalist. That was just like a convenient way of saying <laughs> you're not like us. <laughs> right, right. Um, funny how that happens <laughs> throughout history. <laughs> um, but regardless of whether he was as, is or was as respected as say Beethoven or Schubert or any of the German guys, um, Dvorak does write music that is sometimes reminiscent, redolent of folk music, and sometimes really, really, um, in the case of his Ninth Symphony from the New World, he he famously came to the United States to teach for quite a few years, and famously told American composers we should be looking at our folk music heritage to be inspired, because that's where we get our national identity from. Um, Supposedly, some of the themes in his Ninth Symphony are actually American folk themes. So it's not that he was, I mean, he was, Walking the walk as well as talking the Mm. talk. Um, So it's funny you bring up that piece in specific because it does tie into what we're talking about with my own sort of casual, at best, relationship with Romanian music.
1: Yeah. Have you ever taken any sort of um, professional or not, well, like a non-professional music-based trips? Like, say, I want to go to Romania because I love this music and I want to experience it or somehow expose myself. You know, however that is. Yes. Is that a leading question, or are you just lucky? So yeah, last I'm a genius. <laughs> last <laughs> fall, last <laughs> fall, I had a <laughs> podcast. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, I
2: like I said, I had been interested in the music of Venceslaus and then these other composers. So a number of years ago, maybe five, five, six years ago, something like that, I was in Berlin for a friend's wedding, and I was going to be in Vienna afterwards. Oh, and beautiful! Price Some of, of our favorites. The price of the flights between the two cities, was almost the same as the price of a flight that would go to Bucharest, and then from Bucharest to Vienna. Oh, cool. I mean, it was $50 more. Right. So I said, heck, I'm going to Romania. Like, I don't really know what's gonna happen, but I'm gonna go. So, first time I was in Romania, I was only in Bucharest, and I spent I think only four days there. But in the four days, like, I went to every major musical institution I could Mm -hmm. to glean whatever I could in terms of scores or recordings. Soak it in. Because it's, (laughs) I mean, still, to this day, it's most of the scores are just frankly not available outside of the country. Mm-hmm. You have to either find them on the Romanian equivalent of eBay, or you have to go there physically and get the stuff. So I did that,
1: and so then this
2: the, can turn into an expensive trip. You're, you got well, to buy
1: all this. This
2: was fifty bucks, right, for the extra plane flight, <laughs> and I was only there four days, so that was you know totally worth it. But you're, the the reason I thought maybe you had like done more research or something last fall, I went back to Romania um, because. to to refer to what we were talking about before, in the course of doing this, let's call it armchair research about other composers, I found that the vast majority, and really the vast majority, like 95% or more, of any scholarship, uh, serious or not, just even commentary about Romanian classical music, is only in Romanian language. Mm -hmm. Really. There's a little bit in, in French, because they had a like culturally a serious love affair with France at the beginning of the 20th century. So a lot of composers went to France to study and some went to German speaking places to study, but mostly France, but contemporary scholarship, or even like recent relatively recent scholarships, almost exclusively in Romanian. So I realized if I wanted to get farther into it, I just would have to study Romanian. Mm -hmm. So I got a teacher's textbook and some Mm -hmm. CDs, and I studied it for like nine months, give or or take some months. and then at a certain moment, I realized, heck, well, I mean, I've gotten through this book and I know these grammar structures, but if I'm really going to use it, I just have to be in Romania again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I took a, a short language course. And while I was there, I got to contact a lot of uh, Romanian musicians, like composers and musicologists and things like that. So you just,
1: you had to actively use that Romanian. That you it, just it worked, learned. you know, it really worked.
2: And, wow. and like you said, you soak it up, glean, you know, whatever you can from the experience. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was...
1: That was extremely fascinating, extremely interesting experience. Do you think that uh, learning, do you still, you still, I assume, obviously you still know some of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I got back in uh, December. Oh, right. This just happened. This just happened. (laughs) So Uh, can I ask, Michael, how do you say hello uh, in
0: in Romanian? um, I mean, you can say salut just like casually. If you're
2: doing like the equivalent of bonjour or, you know, good day,
0: it would be, well,
2: bonaziwa. Is oh, good interesting. Day. Okay. Buna okay. ziwa. Good morning. Buna uh-huh. yeah. Look it's cool. a romance Thank language. Everyone. So if you speak romance languages, you can see a lot of like, a lot of really clear uh, links between the two, but it has a lot right. of Slavic influence too. So
0: That's, that's why I was curious because I'm yeah. living in the Czech Republic and so right. we've yeah, done yeah. some different things with Slavic languages and occasionally I pick up on things. So I was curious if the greetings were similar, but they're, but they're completely different. Those are romance ones. Yeah. They sound like... Yeah. Quasi
2: Italian or something, yeah.
0: Right. I also yeah, yeah. remember
1: that uh, Dobri is, I believe, also the same in Romanian, isn't it? Dobri. Dobri. Well, Buna good. is good in Romanian. Yeah, Dobri Romanian would be good in Czech. Yeah. 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 I knew that was, but I, yeah, I yeah. read so many of those. Uh, uh, so, um, do you think that your that your you learning the language has helped positively influenced your, uh, you know, if your your enjoyment or your composition of Folk music, or or, unless you just got back, so. Ah. Do you think, or do you think, because you know the language, if you were to write another sort of folk piece, or if you were to look back at some of your other ones, it could influence it? You could say no, that's okay. I'm an idiot. I'm thinking. No, no, you're not an idiot. (laughs) I think no, but it's because on the one hand,
2: I mean, I don't really speak it well, right? Mm -hmm. Like the the language course I took was like European B1 level, so that's hardly a fluency. Um, That's part of it. It's my my relationship with the language is not a high enough level Mm -hmm. and even if it were at a higher level i think it's still so short term i mean i've only really been caring about romanian language for like a year and a half like almost you know close to two years Mm -hmm. so i don't think it's gotten in there deep enough did you uh how did your french get when while you were there it got good it's a it's a little a little rusty now Mm -hmm. because it was a long time ago but there was a yeah there was a time when i felt very comfortable speaking french but whatever, with anyone, it was fine. Nice. Oh, cool. That's yeah, awesome. That's great.
0: Yeah, um, I don't know if Jared has mentioned to you, but uh, here at the Untranslatable Podcast, we are definitely huge um, supporters and proponents of um, learning foreign languages, learning about other cultures. And, and I think we also view music as a great way to kind of bridge that gap between language and culture. Um, and, you know, it, it gives you a, a kind of a different motivation or reason as well. Um, I'm just curious, did did learning that little bit of Romanian, or also uh, French while you were in Paris, did that give you a deeper appreciation of, of the music and the culture?
2: No, absolutely. I mean, that's a leading question, right? I mean, how could you say no? Um, yeah, if you learn a language, all sorts of doors open up, I mean, physically and, and, <laughs> and metaphorically. That says push, not pull.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, right, that's true.
2: <laughs> I mean, in, in France, where I spent enough time, I mean, I have spent quite a bit of time, yeah, people's people's hearts and minds open up in a way they never, ever will when you address them in their native language mm-hmm. without any question. Mm-hmm. I think that's...
1: I've noticed that specifically about French people is they definitely seem to be... I don't speak French that well, you know, mm-hmm. I, can, I can hobble along if necessary, but my sister's fluent. Yeah. And uh, I've definitely noticed that things seem to go a lot smoother, even if the person does speak English, <laughs> if uh, my sister is the one that's leading the conversation. Well, I think it's true that, like, certain cultures have
2: strong... Oh, I don't know how to put it. French people, let's just say this. I can't really generalize. but French people are very proud of the French language. Mm-hmm. They really absolutely. are. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think they have good reason to be. I mean, I, I like it, too. And they have extremely, like, developed literature, mm-hmm. like, literary culture. I think they've got a lot of reasons to be proud of their language. So, yeah, in, in terms of France, they're super, su- they respond very well when you, when you <laughs> talk to them in French.
1: We've uh, we both spent a lot of time in Austria and Germany. And um, it's almost kind of the opposite for, in my experiences. Yeah. You know, I'm a good German speaker, but they, can, they notice I'm American when I start talking. And we'll, I've often had conversations where they're speaking English and I'm speaking German. I'm like, no, I'm in Germany. I would hate that. German. I, like, know. Well, yeah. we'll practice our English. I know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like, I know. I don't
1: have this. <laughs> I don't see that happening, though, in Paris. I don't see that happening in Paris either. I see someone trying to struggle with English and the person just being like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. You know what's funny, though? When, when I first was in Paris, it never, ever, ever, ever happened.
2: And now people are speaking English a lot more. Really? Interesting. Yeah, Okay and I, I Globalization? Personally, yeah, I don't think it's for the the best, actually. It's a little strange. Uh, I don't live there. I haven't lived there for a long time. But still, when I go back now, when I'm in Paris, I really get the feeling like it's not as French as it used to be. Okay. I understand what you're saying. It really doesn't feel as specific. Maybe it's not that it's not so French. I mean, that's the truth. But the thing that irks me is that it's not so specific. You know, when you go to certain cities, they feel like that place. Mm -hmm. You go to other cities and they feel a little bit, well, I don't know. Maybe you're all, I hope you're not, I hope you're not Brussels fans, but (laughs) when you go to Brussels, to me, it just feels like Europe in in a pan Europe sense. It doesn't feel so specific, which just my, you know, what I like, what I respond to. I don't get excited. When you go to Paris, when you went to Paris 20 years ago, it was really, really darn French. Mm -hmm. When you go now, oh
1: yeah, it's, it's French, but it's not quite the same. And I think that's why we, or at least I claim it to be sort of overrated, because it's, it's become too much of its own thing to where now tourism takes over. I mean, you can't go anywhere, really, within yes. sort of the main area of yeah. Paris and not just here, I mean, not even just English, just, you anything. Know, well, budget. And some people say that's a good thing. Yeah. But, but it's, it, it's one thing if those people live there, and it's another thing where, where it's like, it's, it's it, I, I hate to say tourism... Ruins culture, but no, I have two things I want to say like in response to that But if you live in a place long, let me just say this, if you live in a place long enough You even if you are like if you're from the same country as that person you can come to get very annoyed by tourists
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that like I think it's really good to be confronted with other languages and other cultures all the time Like I Mm -hmm. think we need to develop respect and tolerance for difference, but I think Mm -hmm. we need to preserve the difference I think there's sure. no interest in a world where everything becomes the same color. Right? Right. I, I'm not interested at all. I re- that's my like, you know, philosophical thing. My second <laughs> point is I remember like the last time I was in Italy, I was there with two other composers. We, had a, we were involved in this interesting project where we each composed part of an opera. It's complicated. But in any case, we were in Florence. All three... Well, actually, it's not true. Well, she is now. She wasn't at the time American. Mm-hmm. It was a Taiwanese woman. Now she's a dual citizen and two Americans. And we were walking through Florence... And somebody called out to us in the absolutely perfect, unaccented American English, hey, guys, want some ice cream? <laughs> and we looked over, and it was an Italian girl selling ice cream to tourists, you know, in, of course, in the most touristic part of Florence. Mm-hmm. But sure. it, it, it just shattered something that was magical. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. It really, really did.
1: Uh, But that's how that's she probably gets so much more business. Of course, I can't blame her. I mean, I'm complaining
2: here, but she has to pay her rent, too. (laughs) I would laugh if
1: you listen to her say like any sort of non ice cream related sentences and she's just the most broken English. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's funny. (laughs) I hope so. I really hope so. It's it's
0: really. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. No, go ahead. Uh, Well, I was just going to say, I see a lot of parallels with Prague with this. I mean, I go there very often. It's a wonderful city. But most Czechs you talk to, they're like, yeah, don't go to Prague. There's just too many tourists. And, it's, and when you have so many tourists there, it kind of waters down the culture. You know, it makes it so like I'm, I'm planning on taking Jared to some more authentic Czech places, but the places I'm really looking forward to are actually in my small town and not in Prague. Because in Prague, you get the, you know, the tourist kind of the bastardized version of whatever culture you see.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's fair to say. Uh, what kind of other music do you listen to? Like if you're just walking down the street with your headphones on. I hope this isn't disappointing. I don't listen to music. Uh, okay. I, I, that's Interesting. Than, I thought you were okay. say like <laughs> Katy Perry or something like that. <laughs> no, I, I mean,
2: <laughs> I, how can you explain it? It's a job. Mm-hmm. I love music. I love music without a doubt. I mean, I'm spending all of my waking moments just about thinking about music. Mm-hmm. But... I'm spending almost all my waking moments thinking about music and it is my job. So if I'm, if I'm not working, I'm probably not listening to music. What do
1: you, what what do you, uh, what do you like to listen to? Do you podcast, uh, silence, silence. Okay. Man, I'm so jealous. (laughs) I, I'm so bad. I always have headphones in. Never. I'm always listening to something. It's it's, and, and, and I actually, I've, I've, I haven't really started, But I did make a resolution, and even I bought a yoga mat, so you know I'm (laughs) halfway there. But uh, like, just my plan is to try to meditate more. just because I always am listening to something or have headphones in, and it's it's. And I don't, I like it, but it it's 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 almost like a a way to avoid my what's actually going on in my head. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I mean, I I can't talk about you, but I think two
2: people do distract themselves from their thoughts Mm -hmm. deliberately. I think that on some level, people are aware of what they're doing. Yeah, I think yeah. I'm one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly what I'm doing, and I like it, all right?
1: <laughs> uh, so what do you like to do in your free time? Like when you're not, um, you know, if you're... I really like a- languages, okay. so
2: I would spend a lot of time studying foreign languages. Um, you still,
1: are you still trying to, you still actively keep that up? Yeah, what do you, like what do
2: you, uh, um, I try to have like a book always going in some foreign language. Like I, when I came back from France, I realized that I was gonna lose it if mm-hmm. I didn't keep using it. So sure. I brought back with me lots and lots of books. Yeah, And that's how I got to know French literature is living in Philly, like reading French books. Um, and then t- same thing with any with any language that I studied. So when I was like, uh, I guess in mid, middle school. Wow, what year was that? Yeah, middle school. I studied Spanish and I studied it um, up through high school, like took some college courses in it. So I developed Spanish to a pretty good degree and then like I had to learn French when I was in Paris and took a little bit of German and now some Romanian. And so I have lots of books in the library <laughs> and I'm like constantly cycling through them in order to maintain the languages. So on
1: the nightstand right now, there's a French book and a Romanian book. Do you find it easier um, with easier or harder to to maintain that knowledge with the variety of languages, or is it easier to focus on one? Good
2: question. I do know that I get mixed up in languages, like That's when I speak, okay. That's one of normal. them. Yeah, right. Some mm-hmm. people I've talked to, because I like talking about language all the time too. Right. Mm-hmm. Some people tell me that they don't, and they actually don't. Like I see them switch from Russian to German or what. and Just mm-hmm. they switch. That does not work for me. I have some kind of some kind of circuit in my brain that says you know this is native language of english here's where Mm -hmm. you put all the other ones and some are stronger than others right Mm -hmm. obviously um and some are more uh in the present so like if i'm in romanian mode because i've been speaking romanian for a while and then i try to speak french probably not french it's a little bit better but let's say german or something that's kind of weak Mm -hmm. i'll just start throwing in little words in romanian with you know it doesn't make any sense but that's what comes out (laughs) if they sound the same too
0: Exactly. And what what I can tell you, Michael, as a a language teacher and a foreign language learner as well, is that usually until you really develop fluency to the point where you don't have to think too much in the language, our brains generally will kind of put all the foreign languages in one box. Right. So so when I I'm learning Czech right now, because, you know, it's really helpful. I live in a town of 50,000 people and a lot of people are very intimidated to try to speak English. They just assume because I'm a native speaker, every mistake I hear, I'll either think they're, you know, unintelligent or, or uneducated or what have you. So um, so I have to usually try to speak Czech when, when I'm here, which has been great, and it's been a wonderful learning experience. But when I first started learning Czech, I would randomly um, throw German words in there. Even though my German's fluent, it, it was still kind of in one box. And then my I've learned a little bit of Spanish as well. And so it's funny, whenever I try to do Spanish or Czech, sometimes german will slip out um and yeah. so so yeah and i think the only way you can really get to the point where you can separate them is to where you're you know probably at like a c1 or a c2 level at those languages um, or or maybe if you live in the country long enough and you hear it enough and you're just surrounded in that environment um, but that's pretty normal
2: yeah yeah
1: um do you want to move on to the song of the pod
0: yes i do uh, so we, we thought it would be great, uh, especially because we have your insight to talk about uh, one of your compositions. Um, and the composition is um, Songs of Spring. So we want to feature that for our episode today. So, Michael, what can you tell us about the composition? No,
1: before you say that, mm-hmm. I, I want to know why you chose this piece, Chad, because you specifically chose it. I just really liked it. I mean, there's really. I, I wish I had a more intellectual
0: reason why, but I listened to it and <laughs> I, I was really, really enjoyed better it. Better than that, I'm not gonna lie. Right, <laughs> well, I, I, yeah? think,
2: I think that's the best answer, honestly. Like when it comes to responding to art, I think it's as simple
1: as whether you like it or not. Yeah, I really do. I, I, that I, for sure. I mean, you can analyze it to death, but it's either do you want to listen to it or do you not want to listen to it. Right. Uh, I have one question. Uh, bef- how do you uh, choose the people that play your pieces? And as a meticulous artist, is it hard? Because I feel like for me, I'm not a meticulous person,
2: and it feel like it would be very hard.: Most of the time, well, it depends. Like I can say how you choose the people you work with. right. People who play your pieces, it's sometimes sometimes it's behind it's your you. control. Yeah. yeah. for instance, in "Songs of Spring," um, it was commissioned by the National Cherry Blossom Festival in Washington, D.C. They have an annual uh, festival that celebrates Japanese culture and the ties between D.C. and and Tokyo. And they try to time it at the moment when the cherry blossoms open in D.C. Um, that particular commission was done with another organization called the Ryuji Ueno Foundation, which supports classical music, and they put together a quintet of musicians to play the piece. So in that case, I just delivered the goods, mm-hmm. and they played it. I didn't have, have any choice.
1: Been in a situation where that's been problematic.
2: Anytime you're in a situation with a lot of people that you didn't get to, you know, specifically choose, it can become problematic. Where <laughs> that particular group is great. I mean, that's a different Yeah, we're not talking about them specifically. Yeah, but, let's just clarify. <laughs> but no, when, oh, all the time, if you if you work with, say let's just say an orchestra. Mm-hmm. It's a large group of people, many mm-hmm. of whom have been working in that orchestra for a long time. They may not be as committed to artistic integrity as they once were. It's their job too, right? They show up to work. Mm-hmm. So then sometimes you have problems.
1: As, as someone that has a normal day job as well, where sometimes I have to manage people, I really struggle with, uh, with sort of the follow-up and, 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 the, and the checking in on people and telling them they did something wrong and all that stuff. Where's the line for you where, you've, where you're like, like, this person is, doesn't seem to be getting my note, but, and this is my music that I've made but I also have to l- just let it go or I, have to con- or I have to make this clear.
2: In general, I'm really lucky, I think. I've had good success, good okay. experiences working with musicians. Um, usually when I offer feedback, offer criticism, they take it well. Okay. I've been told by a lot of musicians that they're kind of surprised at how specific the criticism is, like the indication, like directions and suggestions mm-hmm. are. But they've the same people have often said, but I like it, because you know exactly what you want, and you have a yeah. really clear, like, s- reason behind what you want us to do, mm-hmm. so we get it. And so nobody takes it personally, and it works right. well. Sometimes it doesn't. You know, there are always other situations. Um, it's like being a manager at work, right? It's It's the same. You have to you have to do your best to figure out how hard you can push someone to get what you want. Mm-hmm. And then you need, to, I mean, in the end, if you're not performing, they're the ones that are going to play the notes well or right. poorly and make you and your piece sound good or not. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So you have to, yeah, you have to, it's like a little bit of a, a dance reflection of me. And yeah.
1: i much rather just do this on my own. <laughs> <laughs> or, or you'd much rather it sound good <laughs> Yes. if yeah. you're mm-hmm. not doing it on your own. Right.
2: So you, you can, you have to see how hard you can push someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay.
1: So uh, we can get back to the song. Sorry, I digressed a little bit. It was very, and actually, what you saying, how the commission came about, adds a lot more context to it. Because mm-hmm. I did notice, I, I, you know, I wasn't going to say Japanese specifically, but sort of an Asian influence on the song, mm-hmm. and, um, and some of those chords, and uh, it, was, it was great. Yeah, I just I, I I loved it. It was it was great. Do you um, do you have any songs that you would say, you know, I don't, you don't have to even rank them, but some songs that are you're like, this is some of my best, or it's like. Or is it like, oh, these are my children and they're all unique? No, some pieces are better than others You're for like, sure. My favorite, it's
2: like <laughs> <laughs> my favorite. I don't know. I have a, I have a viola and piano piece
1: um, called Wally Mai, which tends. Oh, you played that? Yes, you heard yeah. it. You heard it and at the it's, concert. It's yeah, on oh, you did play it. You, it, as was, well. it was played at the uh, at the concert because that was the that was only that was at the. Viola and the cello alone, right? No, 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 that was that's
2: another one. But the one after that, when I did play with the viola, oh, the
1: Serbian one. Was is the one? No, that's the cello one first. <laughs> the, Shut up! It's okay. No, no. But you did hear it. You did. It was months ago, by the it way. It was the piece that
2: was um, it was inspired by a short story, about Isabel Allende. Yes, that one. Well, I, okay. So I have this piece. Um, yeah, I think I'm supposed to be telling you my favorite children. <laughs> I like Wally Mai. It's a, It's. I think it's a strong piece, and everyone seems to like it. Like, mm-hmm. it, seems to, it, it seems to hit all the right buttons, if that makes any sense. Like, yes. regular mm-hmm. folks mm-hmm. think it's great, really dramatic, very like they respond emotionally. People in the biz, like the ones who have more demands intellectually, let's say, they seem to think it's good enough. Performers like it. It seems to be a, a win-win-win. <laughs>
0: it's a crowd-pleaser. <laughs> and
1: I like it. I think it's a good piece. I, I enjoyed it very much. Uh, I also noticed that... Um, uh, this is just my own observation, but you you, you seem to um, do a very specifically good job with or with uh, with adding the cellos into there. When the cello always seems to stand out to me in a very specific way, and I don't know if that's something you plan for uh, or not, but it's it's it just seems it always seems like, not always, but in a lot of pieces, it seems like the cello is is almost subtly leading the piece. Well, that's I'm, that's good to hear. Um. I mean, every instrument
2: within the context of classical music has kind of developed its identity in a certain way. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And whether or not the instrument really needs to be played that way, needs to serve those functions, that's the culture that surrounds that instrument. So cello is kind of interesting because it's a low instrument. right? It's a big one, and it produces low pitch sounds. But just the way that it's physically set up, you can also access high pitches easily without, yeah, there's a a huge range. So the cello's role in chamber music tends to like, be multifaceted. Sometimes they provide the bass voice. you know, Kind of subtly, they like support the ensemble. Mm-hmm. But then because they can get high easily, and because they can do it, well, I shouldn't say easily, I think it's kind of hard, actually, but because they're expected <laughs> to do it, they develop the capacity to go all over the place mm-hmm. and play technically or expressively in any range. So writing for cello is fun because you can make it, different things yeah so you, i'm glad to hear that versatile. you think it yeah
1: it's a versatile
2: yeah, know, in my okay. music.
1: yeah it was it was very cool i we we both enjoy listening to it and we um you know i mentioned we do this song the song of the pot thing that we're actually doing right now and uh it's is not the first one we've done that when after the um after the uh the red velvet hall concert we also uh featured a song which now i can't remember which one it was long long ago Thank you. <laughs> As I was saying that, I was like, why am I saying this? Because I don't remember which song it was. <laughs> but what I'm getting at is we do both enjoy your music very much. And it's, it's, it's unique. And uh, it seems like a difficult lane to be a contemporary composer in such a regimented uh, art and still sort of find your voice and, and be unique. And I think you do a good job. Yeah, Thank I you. would agree. And we enjoyed having you. Thank you very much. It's been great. Yeah. Yeah. We really, really
0: appreciate it. And for all of our listeners out there, uh, we'll have some links to not only the song of the pod on our Twitter, but also if you want to find out some more information about our guest today, um, we'll post that on our various social media for you. Um, because we, we really want to, um, you know, you've taken the time to, to, uh, talk to us and we really appreciate it. We'd also like to try to give back and, uh, get our spread listeners to spread a little to, love exactly to spread a little love
1: <laughs> that's great <laughs> yeah exactly
0: exactly um so thank you very very much michael we really appreciate it um and we're looking forward to um seeing what you have in store in the future in terms of your compositions and i also want to say i'm uh i've been you know doing also some google research or armchair research i really like that term armchair research <laughs> <laughs> i have to start using that um, and I hope you have a great time uh, coming up in March in Ann Arbor. Um, going back, uh, it looks like you're going to be kind of all over the Midwest. Um,
2: that particular, you're t- I think I know what you're talking about. I'm actually mm-hmm. I won't be there for uh-huh, those performances. Just your pieces but the, are being performed. Just my piece, yeah. That's gotcha. It's a, a saxophone guitar duo that's doing a tour of schools in Michigan and Ohio. Oh, cool. Okay. I would love to go back to Ann Arbor though. When's the last it's time you were back? Place. in Michigan. It's been a long time. It's, it's been a long time since I've been in Ann Arbor. My grandparents lived in, in the Upper Peninsula, so I visited oh. them more frequently. <laughs> Hold on. Okay. <laughs> okay. But, but, but Ann Arbor, no. A long I actually can't tell you. I, it might actually be the year I graduated, 2005. Is that wow. possible? Oh, wow. Okay. I think it's true. Back. I was there. I, after I had graduated, I went back in I think October, November for a couple of concerts. That might have been the last time. November 2005. I wonder, wow. Chad,
1: you, you would probably know better than all of us. but whats has there been a big change in Ann Arbor in those f- 14 years? Like if he were to go back now, would he be like, "I barely recognize this place." I mean, he'd still recognize it. I, you I can you, that you part, definitely but.
0: still recognize it. I mean, the, the only thing is, you know, little restaurants, different bars, different shops. Yeah, I mean, Other that than ha- that,
1: sure. happens. I
0: mean, Ann Arbor. Ann Arbor is weird like that, where, you know, my dad grew up there, and he said it pretty much has almost the same vibe. It's gotten bigger, but downtown Ann Arbor has kind of the same vibe it's always had since like the '60s and '70s. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of
1: interesting. Yeah, but, yeah. I, we love. I love Ann Arbor. We're always hanging yeah. out there when we're in Michigan. So, so yeah, thank you very much for uh, for having us on. It's uh, it's been a lot of fun.
2: Thanks for having me. This is awesome.
0: So once again, we would like to give a special thanks to our guest Michael Jupstrom for being on the Untranslatable podcast. You can check out his compositions on YouTube at Michael Jupstrom. Uh, I promise you, you will not be disappointed. It's absolutely fantastic music. He's a a fabulous composer. So check those out. We hope any of you who are uh, budding composers or interested in music uh, can gain something from this episode today. We really enjoyed it. It was a great time. And uh, I think it's safe to say we've also learned quite a bit here on the Untranslatable podcast. So we thank you all so much for your support and for listening to all of our listeners all over the world. We really, really appreciate it. Um, and please check out our different social media accounts. You can uh, find us on Twitter, untranslatable1. Also on Instagram, untranslatablepodcast and shoot us an email i need some check translatable stat so please send them our way untranslatable podcast at gmail.com uh so we really really appreciate it we hope all of you have a wonderful day or evening whatever time you may be listening to this episode so take care and here at the untranslatable podcast we say Yakuyame.